Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I am your host, Brad Hicks, and this is the Spooky SLV Podcast. Let's get started. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I am back, and we are doing um, three stories tonight. I'm going to do two from uh, Christopher O'Brien's book, The Mysterious Valley. And then I'm going to do one from Big Sky Ghosts, the Montana stories. Uh, still not getting many submissions here, and I'm going to have to start doing some more uh, uh, research, I guess, and start coming up with some stories that you know are told around here. There's, it's weird how tight-lipped people can be around here. <laughs> but uh, let's get going. Okay, the first story is from Christopher O'Brien's book, and it is entitled The Tar Baby. December 31st, 1992, Crestone Baca Grande, Sawatch County. My significant other, Isadora Story, and I were in the midst of hosting a New Year's Eve party at our home. As the party wound down and folks eased out the door, I overheard a friend recalling UFO sightings she had experienced recently with her boyfriend. She said she stood telling a small, captivated group with a, about unusual lights and glowing objects. I, also captivated, listened to every detail. The speaker appeared calm yet excited as she described the experience almost poetically. I started asking questions trying to find out as much as I could about these occurrences. She named other witnesses who had apparently seen the unknown lights the, the, the next three nights. Some of these witnesses, including her boyfriend, were at the party. As the conversation progressed, first one, then another, witnesses walked in from the other room and joined the animated conversation describing sightings over the Baca Ranch on November 25th and December 9th through the 12th, 1992. I found it disconcerting to hear people talking so casually about glowing orbs and dancing lights. Then came the clincher, Charlotte Heer. A local closet UFO buff mentioned she had seen a short article in the regional newspaper, Alamos's Valid Courier reporting a mutilation on a small ranch in Costilla County. The event took place the same night that many Baca area witnesses had seen those unexplained lights. Unbeknownst to me, I was grabbing firmly hold of a tar baby. My full-time investigation literally began that night, and I can't help but look back at the pivotal evening in view of my native excitement with a smile. If I had known what I was getting into, my excitement would have undoubtedly been tempered with the realization that years of frustrating and unrewarding hard work lay ahead with no promise of any firm answers. I never actually dreamed I would solve these riddles, but I felt compelled to investigate the extent of these elusive events. Reality-shattering phenomena are touchy subjects. I quickly found that I would receive ridicule from people and respect from others. Rule number one. Controversial subjects generate polarized responses. I was oblivious to the implications of starting a murky investigation into the bazaar. Crestone is a small town in a region literally decades behind the times. I would need to tread carefully if I wanted to maintain any respect from skeptics. My natural reporter's instincts took hold, and the next day I made my first phone call to find out more about a UAD that had allegedly occurred in Costilla County. Local resident and Crestone Eagle publisher Kizen Dennett, not a person to shy away from the controversy, suggested I do some research, conduct a couple of interviews, and write an article for her Electric Monthly. She laughed and went 
I asked her how much she'd pay me for writing an article for her paper. I, it was apparent that I wasn't going to make any money writing for the Eagle or, as I later learned, any fringe subject publication. Luckily, Kizen had a copy of the Courier article concerning the Costilla UAD. She found the potential story compelling and urged me to contact reporter Ruth Hyde to obtain rancher Manuel Sanchez's phone number. Give him a call. Let me know what he says and please don't make the article too long. Ruth Hyde still had her interview notes. I called the ranch and asked Mrs. Sanchez if I might speak with her husband. She put him on, but he sounded scared, possibly angry. And then I called Billy Mestis, the Costilla County Sheriff who had investigated the report and found neighboring Los Animas County had logged a UAD report the same day. I was getting somewhere. I called Los Animas Sheriff Lou Girodo's Trinidad office. They're back. He exclaimed when I related descriptions of the lights and had been the lights that had been seen over the Baca Ranch by over a dozen witnesses the night the cattle surgeons resumed their work. Back? Who was back? The apparent synchronicity between the Baca lights and the unusual cattle deaths intrigued me. What's going on? I was going to try at least, at the very least, to find out. As most people with a minimal knowledge of unusual death animal animal death phenomena, I was under the false impression that these animals the animal deaths had ceased. I hadn't seen a single reference to cattle mutilations in the media for years, and now that I thought about it, it seems strange that I never saw a single reference to them in the news stories my first four years in the Valley. The San Luis Valley's supposed role in the phenomenon is well documented in UFO, UFO, UFOlogy. <laughs> Snippy the Horse and a uh, Snippy the Horse, the acknowledged granddaddy of them all, occurred here and I wondered if Snippy's owners were still around. Perhaps they could shed some light on these recent events. Hmm. Kind of gives you an insight of how he was doing that. Um, how he started his journey through, well, the mysterious valley. <laughs> Anybody who lives here knows dang good and well what he's talking about, too. Snippy the horse has been a story that I've known since I was a kid. Horse's real name was Lady. Um... Don't know why they called it Snippy. I, I'm, I can't remember the facts on that one. But cattle mutilations and animal mutilations around here are unfortunately a common occurrence. Um, I tend to be a little skeptical about them. Um, I don't know. I've seen some animals eaten in the hills that were attacked and killed by predators. And they left a mess. It was horrible. But then I've seen others that I know for a fact were attacked and killed by predators, and you couldn't tell it was predators. So eh, I'm skeptical about the whole thing. But let's move on to the next one. All right, next story is again by Christopher O'Brien out of the book Mysterious Valley. We'll start out with his rule number two, record or write everything down as soon as possible, no matter how inconsequential or insignificant it might seem at the time. Story name, Waiting for the Eclipse, December 9th, 1992, 8.45 p.m., Denver, Colorado. Astronomer Michael Robertson and a friend were scanning the heavens before the lunar eclipse when they spotted an orange object approaching from the northeast. As it reached 80 degrees above the horizon, a second object approached from the northwest. Both trained observers agreed these objects did not appear to have lights and were flying just under 30,000 feet, reflecting the setting sun. The two objects crossed path over downtown Denver and headed towards southern Colorado. 
Robertson stated to Colorado Mutual UFO Network, or MUFON, investigators, in 30 years of watching the skies, I have never observed anything like those objects. Same day, 9.15 p.m., Cresta Baca Grande, Baca Grande, <laughs> Sawatch County, my white came out. Christy, not her real name, recently had moved to the Baca where her parents and grandparents live. The single 30-something Chicago native was watching television in a rented chalet home. A college graduate and gifted singer with a razor wit, Christy, like her parents, had little time for new-age knuckleheads and flying saucers. She was, however, an avid sky watcher who was anticipating that night's lunar eclipse. As she left the couch to turn off the television, she saw two unusual golden-white orbs of light flash overhead. The 16-foot-high A-frame window afforded her a spectacular view of the objects as they streaked over the house, heading southwest down Spanish Creek, one of the many creeks that flow year-round out of the Sangres, into the valley floor running onto her porch, Christy watched the objects follow the tree-lined path of the creek as they shot across the valley at fantastic speed. Same day, 9.15 p.m., Baca Grande Development, Sawatch County. Luna Bontempe and Lucas Price were outside enjoying a crisp December night. They were house-sitting for a friend who homesits besides Spanish Creek in the Baca, Gr Baca Grants and anxiously awaited the coming eclipse. Luna was the first to notice the unusual lights. Low to the ground and south of their location, the small, glimmering lights appeared to be over the southern end of the Baca Ranch where they were bouncing around, creating geometric shapes. First, they formed a square and hung motionless and like stars in the late fall sky. Check that out, she exclaimed, drawing Lucas's attention as the lights formed a triangle. Lucas suddenly spotted two brilliant orbs of light streaking down the western slope of the Sangres to their left. The two lights followed Spanish Creek at treetop level out over the valley and then turned towards them silently at, at incredible speed. The large laser-like ovals zipped directly over their heads, continued past them, and hovered behind a grove of cottonwood trees about 200 yards due south of the house. The objects started shooting off milky beams of light as too bright, so bright the two of them could see owl nests lit up in the tops of the trees. As they watched in amazement, the light beams simultaneously vanished and completely forgot all about the eclipse. The small glimmering lights reappeared and danced like clockwork over the Baca Ranch on the following three nights. Luke and Luna brought their three kids and a couple of neighborhood children up to the old Independence Gold Mine, situated high above the valley south of Crestone, for a better view. The unidentified lights bounced around between 9 and 9.30 p.m. while the group watched and munched popcorn. That would have been cool to watch. <laughs> I've seen some interesting stuff here in the valley, but nothing quite like that. That would have been fun to just sit back and watch them bounce around for a while. Uh, again, I want to thank Christopher for letting me read from his book. You're going to hear a lot more from both of his books that I have. I think he has one more out. I may have to ask him about that and find out where I can purchase it. Um, but let's move on to the next one. Okay, folks, the next story is called The Shepherd's Cane, and it is from The Big Sky Ghosts, Eerie True Tales of Montana, Volume 1 by Deborah Munn. Moving from one house to another is stressful even when all goes well, but when folks discover they're sharing their new home with a malicious spirit, the strain can be almost unbearable. In May of 1987, Tamara and Jim Fuller, not their real names, and their two young sons, Chase and Travis, 
moved into a 1930s-era log house on the northwestern part of Miles City, Montana. They were looking forward to settling down peacefully in their new residence, but strange things began happening even before they could unpack their belongings. From the day we moved in, everybody in the family would often hear what sounded like someone in heavy boots jogging up the stairs, Tamara remembered. And we hadn't even been there more than two months when something even more frightening happened. It was about 11 o'clock one night, and I was upstairs in our bedroom. We had just turned the lights out, and when I saw this old man with a very long hair and a beard, he didn't look like anyone I'd ever seen before, and he seemed to be wearing leather. I, I've never seen him since then, and as far as I know, no one else has either. Tamara believes that a possible clue to the apparition's identity was an old sheep herder's cane found in one of the bedrooms. We took it out of there to hang it in the living room, and that was, was when all of our bad luck seemed to begin. First, Jim shattered his leg and fractured his skull in a woodcutting accident, and he was laid up for over a year and a half, unable to work. The only good thing was that the doctor was able to save his leg. Next, three of our animals died, two of them mysteriously. Our Doberman suddenly became ill, and within a few weeks, he could no longer control his bladder or bowels. He just dwindled away to skin and bones, and we had to put him to sleep. Then one of our cats got run over and another one developed the same strange illness that the dog had had. This one developed the same strange illness that the dog had. I also had fits of terror and would run up and down the stairs yowling with his hair standing on end. He got to the point where he was attacking people, so we had to put him to sleep too. We never knew what was wrong with him, but it wasn't rabies or distemper. After all this happened, Tamara continued, a guy who had grown up in the house across the street told us that one of the families who had lived, one of the families who had ever lived in that place, I'm sorry, after all this happened, Tamara continued, a guy who had grown up in the house across the street told us that none of the families who had ever lived in that place had been able to keep an animal alive and healthy. Other disturbances have continued to baffle the family. Once after Jim went off to work and Tamara had just gotten out of the shower, the smoke detector in the hallway went off for no apparent reason. I climbed up on a chair to pull the cover off and stopped the loud noise, but I didn't know how these things worked. My son told me to push the flashing red electronic sensor button, so I did. And after a few minutes, the noise finally stopped. I left the cover off, and later that night when Jim got home, he asked me why it was like that. I told him that we had what had happened, and he got a funny look on his face. He said, that's weird. There haven't been any batteries in this thing for at least six months. Another strange thing that happens at least two or three times a month is that the bathroom water faucet turns itself on full force so that somebody has to go turn it off. I know the kids aren't doing it because it's happened when all of us have been sitting in the living room together. Living in a spooky house would be enough to give anybody bad dreams, but both Tamara and her son Chase have complained of them recently. I've woken up screaming, she said, and Chase has been having a lot of nightmares about bones coming up out of the ground in the garden outside. I don't know if that means anything or not, but I have wondered whether we're built on an old Indian burial ground, or maybe some soldiers died here. We're very close to both the Tongue and the Yellowstone Rivers, so who knows? I do know that lots of the strange feelings emanating from this house seem to come from underneath that bedroom where we found the sheep herders came. And somehow I just knew intuitively that there had been an archway at one time going into the same room. You couldn't see it anymore, but when we did some remodeling, we found it. It had been paneled over, and the inside of the arch had been blocked up with wood. 
when we finally did open it up, Jim and I both experienced a strange feeling as if a spirit were moving through our bodies. Tamara and Jim had ex exhibited psychic sensitivity even before moving into the log house. The strangest thing happened once when we were walking into another house we owned at the time, Tamara said. Suddenly something picked me up about two feet off the ground, turned me completely around in the air and dropped me flat on my back so that I was looking up at Jim. Immediately I knew that something had happened to someone I loved. Jim just looked back at me and said, Tammy, I'm sorry to tell you this, but your grandma just died. I said, I know. Sure enough, the next morning my parents called to tell me that my grandmother had died at five minutes after 12 the night before, at the same time that I had been picked up by that unseen force. And the really odd thing is the way Jim was granted knowledge of my grandmother's death. Psychic awareness runs in families, or in the case of the Fullers, so many strange things may have happened that even Tamara and Jim's very young children know they're sharing the house with someone who isn't flesh and blood. We never really talked about this stuff because we didn't want to scare the kids, Tamara explained. But once I couldn't find my address books, one of the boys, who was about four at the time, says, well, why don't you just ask the ghost who lives here where it is? And we hadn't even been there very long when that happened. Both kids have now mentioned the ghost, but fortunately, they don't seem to be afraid. They're just acting like having him around as a normal part of life. If the boys aren't bothered by the old sheep herder's ghost, the same can't be said for the cat and the fullers that the fullers have now. He looks up at the ceiling and yowls a lot, and he started having accidents on our bed and other things, said Tamara. I've started closing the door to that bedroom since he always seems to want to go in there. I'm not sure that his behavior is caused by the ghost, but who knows? Who knows indeed? And again, thank you, Deborah Munn. That's a good story. Um, if you, by some odd chance, happen to hear this, contact me at the email, spookyslvpodcast at gmail.com, and let me know it's okay that I'm reading your stories. And that's if you hear this. It's highly unlikely you're going to. Um, I have a very small following. <laughs> Thanks again. All right, folks, that's it for me tonight. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. I will have another one out next Tuesday. Um, and also, if you have submissions, if you have stories you want to tell, please, just please, please, please send them to me at SpookySLVPodcast at gmail.com. You'll get them read here on the air. And also let me know if you want to uh, receive author credit or if you want to remain anonymous. I'm okay doing the anonymous. I just, you know, would like to people to know the names of the storytellers. Uh, you shouldn't be afraid to tell your stories. Also, um, if you're a fiction writer, I would love to hear some of your stories there too. I mean, I would love to get a uh, like an unknown fiction writer out on the podcast. Yeah, I'm not a national podcast by any means, but it would be nice. And story submissions, they can be fiction, they can be uh, allegedly true, whatever you want to send me. They can, I'll read them on the air. And they don't have to be local. I'm reading, you know, stories from Montana right now because I'm kind of short on what I need. I need submissions. <laughs> so if you've got a story, it doesn't matter where you're from right now. I would prefer to hear local stories. But if you are out of state, if you're across country, if you're in another country altogether, send me stories. I want to hear them and I want to read them. I want to put them on the air and I want everybody else to know they're there. And uh, finally, I want to give a shout out to my buddy, Andres Herrera, who is um, 
the one who supplied me with the intro and outro music. He's a great musician. You need to check him out. He's got uh, his own podcast here on uh, Spotify. His uh, podcast name is Decibels Deep Podcast. You can also find him on Instagram under that name. And also his second account he has is Entropy and Motion Music. He's a great musician. He's a great guy. Check him out. Show him some love and subscribe. Thanks, folks.